Now let's turn in our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 12. And if you're using a church Bible, the passage is on page 1079. Um, As the book of Ruth might say, it just so happens uh, that today in our studies through John's Gospel, uh, we've come to the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And we're going to read uh, that passage in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Uh, Although I do encourage you to keep your Bible open uh, at the place, because I want us to try and look together at the whole passage, however briefly and superficially. Uh, Jesus has been anointed in that special way by Mary at Bethany. And the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. That was the big question for them, as John tells us in the previous chapter. They were all wondering if he would come back to Jerusalem because they knew there was a plot to kill him. So they took branches of palm trees and went out from Jerusalem to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Zechariah chapter 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus Actually, that's what John's Gospel is about. Uh, It's a portrait of Jesus that has been written to enable us to to hear Jesus, but also to see Jesus. And John is a master portrait painter with words. And I suppose like a great portrait when an art critic describes it to you, you begin to see little details that enhance the picture. And John very much paints details into the story of Jesus' life that enhances the picture. We've seen that he divides his gospel into two volumes. Book one, the book of the signs, which ends here, and book two, the book of glory, which really begins in chapter 13. And there's a marvelous balance, uh, not only between these two books, but within the books. So book one begins with a prologue, 
And it's very interesting if at your leisure you read the closing verses of John chapter 12, you'll notice that what he says at the end of John chapter 12, in a way, answers what he has said about Jesus in John chapter 1. Uh, He speaks about Jesus in John chapter 1 as being the light that has come into the darkness. And the end of chapter 12, he reflects on Jesus as the one who is the light. In chapter 1, he had reflected on how important faith in Jesus is. And at the end, uh, he speaks again about the importance of faith in Jesus. And at the beginning, he had said, this Jesus is the Word who was with God, face to face with God. And right at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, that's where I came from. And everything I have said to you, I have said not on my own authority, but because I heard it from the Father. So there's this marvelous symmetry between the beginning and the ending. What we've been told about Jesus at the beginning of the gospel, now as for the very last time Jesus preaches the gospel in John's gospel, in the rest of this gospel, no one but disciples will hear the gospel from Jesus' lips, really. So this, in a sense, is this is the last opportunity. The book of the signs that point to Jesus is closing. And now Jesus is beginning to enter into his glory, and only his disciples may behold his glory, as John has said in the opening section of the gospel. And what John is now doing in this chapter is taking us stage by stage to the challenge that Jesus issues at the end of his public ministry in John's gospel. It begins actually with the events that we were thinking about last week. And the first thing to notice in this chapter is the way in which Jesus' actions in Bethany provoked the response of his enemy. That was true of what he did in his earlier visit to Bethany when he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And you remember in chapter 11, Caiaphas's reaction as he saw that people were beginning to follow Jesus, impressed by the signs that he did, they began to plot together. And there was a question as to whether this was, was this a righteous thing to do, to plot to put Jesus to death? And Caiaphas, says John, issued a prophecy not knowing he was doing it. That the time had come for one man to die for many. And John picks this up. It's it's a little detail he, he paints into the portrait of Jesus out of the mouth of one of Jesus' enemies who's plotting to destroy him but doesn't see that this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. He is the one who has come to die for the many. And it's really the story of the prologue in, in, in real time. Light coming into the darkness and the darkness seeking to extinguish the light but ultimately being unable to do it. But now we discover something about the darkness. Uh, it begins to emerge in chapter 12 when Mary 
pours this amazing fortune of ointment over Jesus. And and now we're told that uh, Judas Iscariot, who said this could have been sold and the money given to the poor, this would have been a marvelous opportunity for kingdom mercy ministry if you had given me the ointment and I had sold it. And John tells us he had no interest in giving to the poor. He had only interest in the percentage he could cream off because he was an embezzler. He was a thief. And now we discover what Jesus all the way along knew, that there was a quizzling in the disciple band, that there was a Trojan horse in the camp, that there was a, there was a fifth column. And now the enemy outside who in John's gospel is ultimately related to a supernatural enemy outside. That enemy outside, and those who are plotting to kill Jesus, make connection with someone who is in the inside. And eventually we're told in the next chapter that Judas would literally leave the inside after Jesus had washed his feet Judas would leave the inside. And John says very tellingly that uh, when he went out, it was night. Meaning he'd been in the light. But now he had fully aligned himself with the darkness. And so here, the whole narrative is coming to a kind of climax. and, And as things are put into place... By Jesus' enemy, the ultimate enemy, and then the enemies among the Jews, and then the enemy in the disciple band. It certainly looks as though the darkness that seeks to overcome the light will overcome the light. And the whole situation is out of Jesus' control. And yet, if you read through John's Gospel, you would have noticed a little refrain that keeps on recurring. It recurred uh, several times since chapter 2 that Jesus knew his hour had not yet come. That Jesus knew his hour had not yet come. That this happened because his hour had not yet come. And so as you look at this portrait of Jesus as he's introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 12, it certainly looks as though darkness is about to overwhelm him. But it's almost as though John says, now now just stand back a little and read this in the light of everything I've told you in the gospel. Read those little hints that I've painted into my portrait of Jesus. And what do you see? You see, Jesus is in total sovereign control of the situation. And that actually is what then emerges in the second section in John chapter 12. Jesus, who looks as though he is the light being overwhelmed by the darkness, is actually the son who is living according to his father's timetable. And he begins to show that he is really reigning in the situation by what happens next. So Jesus' actions in Bethany provoke his enemy, but then his triumphal entry reveals his true identity. 
And this is very interesting because um, you know, maybe this was true when you were in Sunday school, if you were in Sunday school as a little boy and you were told the story of the triumphal entry. It just kind of all seemed to happen spontaneously. There's Jesus riding in and suddenly the people get excited. John tells us it wasn't actually like that at all. What actually happened was this. People had been wondering whether, because apparently news of the plot got out, as things do, the press had their equivalents in Jerusalem, word had spread, people were saying, is he going to come to the Passover, is he not going to come to the Passover? And then this amazing event in Bethany, headline news, 25,000 pounds worth of perfume poured over Jesus' feet by a family friend, word spread through Jerusalem. And so they, they, they do the thing. You know, what happens when you know the queen is coming? All the primary school children are herded out, and all those Union Jacks and a few little St. Andrew's flags start to wave, and, uh, and this, is, this is exactly what happened. The palm branch essentially in this day, had become the national flag of this oppressed people. And so they, they flock out of Jerusalem. These are not the people who were going up to the Passover, as it were, with Jesus. These are the people who were already in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they come out to meet Jesus. And they're waving their palm branches, and they're, they're shouting their words from, in this case, Psalm 118, one of the psalms that was regularly sung in the morning by the temple choir at the time of the festivals, looking forward to the arrival of the king, hailing the king. And they, they cry out, we are told here in verse 13, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And it's in response to that that Jesus reveals, yes, he is the Davidic king, but he has a different kind of kingdom. And although apparently nobody Nobody had enough Bible and spirit-given illumination in their minds and brains to be able to see clearly what it was that Jesus was doing. You see, they had seen other signs and they thought they were fantastic, but actually he was giving them a sign here and they, they didn't recognize the sign. He was giving them the sign that his kingdom would be a different kingdom. He was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that the way the true king, the true Davidic king, the way the true kingdom of God would come in would not be by political might delivering them from Rome, but by saving grace found in the humility of the Lord Jesus. Actually, <coughs> to move from one art form to another, Handel's Messiah gets this absolutely right. Not, by the by, because Handel got it right, but because Charles Jennings, who actually wrote the words of the Messiah, got it right. 
And if you remember how the Messiah unfolds just at this point, you'll understand how marvelously he got it right. Because the Messiah moves from the hailing of the king to the humility of the king. From the wonderful words, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, your king comes, to then shall the eyes of the blind see, and to he shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and then to this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And John tells us, he actually includes himself in this, which was a wonderful piece of honesty. None of us actually could see this until until after he had been glorified, after he'd been raised from the dead, after he'd sent the Holy Spirit to us. And, and then we, we looked at the picture again, and we thought, how could we possibly have missed it? How could the people have missed it? Except we do. <laughs> We've all done it, haven't we? We see him, but we don't see him. We don't understand why he came in such humility. But that's what John then leads to in the next stage of the passage. Because there seems to be something just really strange happens. Here he is riding into Jerusalem, sending the signal that he is not the Messiah who has come to bring political deliverance, but the Messiah who has come to bring spiritual deliverance. And then some Greeks pop up. Like, where did you guys come from? But it's really significant. Um, You'll see how significant it is if you look at verse uh, 39. In a way, it's a pity there are, at least in my ESV, there are words, black words in between, dividing that paragraph off from the next paragraph. But you remember what the Pharisees said? You see, you're gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. Now they had no idea what they were saying. But those words are hugely significant because what they have just said is now literally fulfilled. And these Greeks, these Gentiles, who have God-fearers probably, who have come up to the Passover celebration, aren't fully allowed to participate in all the rites and privileges of temple worship, they come to Philip. Philip isn't actually a Jewish name. It's a Greek name, isn't it? Um, and he came from, from Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, he, they probably went to him because, you know, if, you know, if you're somewhere in, let's say if you're in South Korea and you hear somebody uh, crying out, MacIver or MacLeod, and you're Scottish. Then if you're stuck in the airport, you make a beeline for him. There's a connection there. That's probably what happened. Hey, Philip. Wow. That's a Greek name. Maybe he understands our language. Probably did. He came from an area that was a trade route. Greek was the, the language of the Roman Empire. I think Jesus probably spoke Greek. 
as well as Aramaic. And they make a beeline for him and they, they, they say, you won't know this because most of you are not in pulpits, but it certainly used to be when there were pulpits in churches, in so many Scottish pulpits, these words would be written, sir, we would see Jesus. And it's interesting, you think, you know, were they small? Were they all, are, all, are all Greeks small? You know, could they not see Jesus? Had they not seen Jesus? They, they didn't just mean, we want to see Jesus. They really meant, we want to get to know Jesus. We want to be introduced to Jesus. And, and this is another connection, isn't it? Back to John chapter 3. Uh, Unless you're born from above, you'll never see the kingdom. And here are these Pharisees saying, look, the whole world has gone after him, and they're totally blind to the significance of what they have just said. What is the significance of what they've just said? You notice, you notice what happens here? It all seems very disjointed. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, there are Greeks here who want to see you, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what's the connection? There are Greeks here to see you. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's the connection? Is this. That Jesus understood that as the messianic king, he was the one who would fulfill the promise that God had given in Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. It was a sign to Jesus, a providentially, sovereignly, strategized sign to Jesus that now the hour had struck. The time had come for the Father to fulfill his promise to him. That he would rule the nations as the Savior King. That he was not just the light of Israel, but the light of the world. And they had come not just for the Jews, but also for Gentiles. And so the request of the Greeks signals Jesus that his hour of destiny has come. So what happens in Bethany draws out his enemy. What happens as he rides into Jerusalem reveals his identity. What happens when the Greeks come is that it signals his hour of destiny. And what happens in the rest of the passage is that Jesus commits himself to everything that is involved in this pathway to glory. And what's involved in this pathway to glory, as he makes clear, is his own death. That the way to the salvation of the Gentiles will be through the suffering of the Messiah. That the reason he rides into Jerusalem meek and lowly and riding on an ass is because he is the servant king. And before this chapter is ended, John has picked up from Jesus some very remarkable things about what he's doing here. 
If you at your leisure read through these verses, you'll, you'll notice there are all kinds of subtle allusions in them, not just to the promise of the Davidic king, which is so clear in this passage, but also to the very first promise of the coming Savior in Genesis 3.15, that he would enter into conflict with the evil one and that he would crush the head of the serpent, even as his own heel was being crushed by the serpent. And Jesus speaks about that here in this passage, about the way in which he will cast out the prince of darkness. So the very earliest promise of the gospel is being fulfilled in Jesus. And then in a way the greatest promise of the gospel is being fulfilled in Jesus because as you read these closing verses you'll see woven into them references to the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53 who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. So the Davidic king is the promised conquering seed. And the promised conquering seed is the suffering servant. And there's reference also to the the presence of the Son of Man, a figure who appears in Daniel chapter 7 and who inherits the kingdom and then shares that kingdom with his people. So that the suffering servant is also the victorious Lord who enters into his kingdom. And there's one other picture of Jesus from the Old Testament that's fulfilled here, very clearly. Jesus is not only the seed of the woman who conquers the seed of the serpent, the Davidic king who rides in humility into Jerusalem, the Son of Man who enters into his kingdom, the suffering servant who goes through death to glory, who is wounded for the transgressions of his people. But there was a promise tucked away in the book of Deuteronomy that God had given to Moses, that one day he would raise up a prophet like Moses, the prophet. And we were to listen to him. And when Jesus has withdrawn and John has made his comments on who Jesus really is, it seems as though he he then goes back. It's as though he's saying, now do you see who Jesus is? Well, now that you see that, I want just to take you back to Jesus' last words to the people. And so the chapter and the book of signs and the first half of John's gospel ends with a powerful appeal by Jesus, the light of the world, to people who are in danger of going back into the darkness to come and trust him. And that's the last appeal there is in John's gospel to anybody to come and trust for the first time in Jesus Christ because if you don't come to the light while it's shining what you actually do is recede back into the darkness I was thinking about that during the week because uh, Jesus being the light of the world has been a big verse in 
the whole of my life since I was 14, which is now 56 years ago. When I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, because of John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who comes and follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And as I've been reading the, the end of this first half of John's gospel this week, this thought has come into my mind. What would have become of me if that night I had said, maybe sometime, but not tonight. And I've wondered if this would happen because this is actually what happens. You don't forget that you took a step back and that you said no. And in most circumstances when you do that, what's the next thing you've got to do? You've got to justify either to others or to yourself why you took a step back. And every time you do it, you're taking a step back and another step back. That's actually what Judas did. Judas must have heard Jesus say, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, no matter what, you will never walk in darkness. You will always have the light of life, even when you're in the darkness. I wonder if that was the first moment just in the sheer power of that appeal that Judas just took a a little step back into the darkness and the point that John seems to be making in his gospel just the way he structures the whole gospel is that when you see when you catch a glimpse of who Jesus really is if you step back into the darkness you've no guarantee you'll ever step forwards again into the light. And you don't know whether this is the last appeal. (laughs) When I was a youngster, you know, people would say, you might die tonight. Well, you actually might live tonight. But the real question John is asking us is, are you hearing Jesus? And are you stepping forward into the light? It's as though he's saying, listen to how sobering and serious this is. It's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's joyful. It's also sobering and serious. Precisely because he is the light of the world. And without him, one way or another, you're stepping back into the darkness. So come. Come into the light. And no matter how dark it becomes, you will always have Jesus with you as the light of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and for this amazing picture of him that you give to us in this part of your word. We pray that we may be just like these Greeks and in our hearts say to you, Lord, we We want to see Jesus. And we pray that if there is light that comes into our hearts from your word so that we do see Jesus, that you will help us to step forward and embrace the light and not to step back again, ever, into the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.